Good afternoon, audience. It's 12 noon in Dubai, and I welcome you from whichever part of the world you are coming in. Uh, for our next uh, session of uh, our webinars, this is the fourth edition, and today we'll be talking about return on engagement, how ROE is becoming the new ROI. It's a very interesting topic. We have a lot to say on this, and I have a constellation of stars today. Uh, we have the usual three co-panelists who've been with us from the beginning, and we have two guest panelists joining us today. So I'm going to begin by reintroducing John Scott to the audience. Uh, John Scott, based in New York, presently in Dubai. He's the founder of Humanix. Uh, it's an organization that uh, he started a few years back. Uh, he's a thought leader, a change maker, and has been coaching CEOs on leadership for more than 15 years. Uh, next then, I want to reintroduce Arnaud Collery, based in France, and he runs a personal growth platform called humaneva.com, and he has also coached several multinational organizations around the globe. Rajiv Daswani, based right here in Dubai, also a founder of a Happiness Coaching Center, an organization he started a few years back, and he talks about conscious leadership. He's a coach, a global speaker, and he talks on well-being and positive workplaces. Uh, so that's our three panelists. And now it's uh, time for me to uh, request Laura Everest, based in Dubai, to introduce herself to our audience. Laura, over to you. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Good midday time here, afternoon. Uh, I'm Laura Everest. Um, and I think I, I had spent probably the last 30 years leading large teams and elevating leaders and teams across the globe. And I honestly thought I'd nailed it. And I knew exactly what it took for people to feel engaged and to thrive at work. But that was until I had my accident. And eight years ago here in Dubai, where I'm based, I was a runner and I was out running one morning. I was hit by a car and thrown 30 feet. And as you can imagine, uh, it wasn't good. I smashed most of my body and it was, uh, my mother always said, if you're gonna do something, do it properly. And I really, really did. Um, and apart from terrible, terrible injuries um, aside, um, there was thought that I would have to have both my feet amputated and that I'd never walk again. And so far, eight years down the line, I have had 17 surgeries to rebuild me. I have, um, I'm investing in titanium and it's uh, going well so far. I have three more surgeries in the next few months to go through as well. But what I've learned from this actually is that you don't need to be a superhero to survive in life. I have found that not only have I survived, I've really, really thrived. And why? Because I've realized that actually we can prepare to live the best life we want to. And actually we have a huge amount of hidden strength that we don't always realize that we have. And honestly, truly my accident brought that to life because like everybody else, I spent so much of my life just being and doing that I never really had the opportunity to hit pause and really think about what I was doing and how I was doing it. And it was only when people were saying, how are you so resilient? I thought, I don't know, what am I doing? So I studied positive psychology, 
I did a deep dive on resilience and learned optimism. And I became a Gallup strengths coach because I realized that not only can we learn to do the, to learn the strategies on how to thrive in life, but we need to understand our deep motivations and recognize that we can do so much to help ourselves. But what I realized too is that I was doing it unconsciously. And I think you'd probably agree with me that a lot of what we do when we achieve things well, we do it instinctively, but without necessarily thinking really hard about what we're doing. And I realized that actually, if we become more consciously aware of what we're doing, we can actually pull those strings a bit harder, work those strengths and talents of ours even better and achieve more remarkable outcomes. So the thing is this, I don't now show people my superpowers. I like to show people theirs. And so what I help people do is if you're feeling stuck or frustrated, or you want to take your career to the next level, I work through Gallup Strengths and I help organizations and leaders to really find where they are at their best, what makes people uniquely powerful and vulnerable, and figure out how to develop strengths to thrive, especially in this uncertain business today. So that's me, and it's lovely to be here. Thank you, Sharad, for inviting me. And I'm loving to hear now from Katie all about her, because it's the first time I've met her today. Hello, Katie. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for the introduction. It's so wonderful to hear your inspiring story. And I love how it relates to the resilience side of things and the strengths. So hello, everyone. I'm Katie Stoddard. I originally began my career as a hydrographer. For those of you who don't know what that is, I used to map the sea floor and go away at sea for several months at a time. And though that involved a lot of adventure and was quite thrilling in many ways, I quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted to focus on. And that wasn't really my journey. So I had a big existential crisis that I feel is extremely common for a lot of people and realized this isn't my career. What shall I do with my life? And then I discovered coaching. I fell head over heels in love with coaching. I thought, how come I didn't know about this? I loved everything from the in-depth conversations to how to set goals to everything, everything about coaching. So I quit my job as an engineer, started my own business as a coach, and I focus now on peak performance. And what I mean by peak performance is a yin approach to peak performance. This means achieving the best result, thriving in your business, tapping into that self-leadership, but without overforcing and willpower. I feel there's a lot of work out there, the 5 a.m. club and all that jazz around yang peak performance and getting up at five and forcing, 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 and just relying on self-discipline. And I'm really interested on how you can actually use self-compassion to achieve the best results and to find balance in your life and business. So I work with business owners on yin peak performance and leadership, facilitate corporate workshops, also host a podcast, The Focus Bee Show that I love. I had Arno on. So if you want to check out the episode with Arno, uh, that was great too. And yeah, so that's sort of me in a nutshell. And thank you, Sharad. And thank you everyone for having me today and passing it over to you, Sharad. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. I can see we have a lot of talent in the room. So let's get on with our conversation. And if I may, um, you know, we're talking about the next normal where everything is up for re-examination. 
We have to reimagine the future of work, right? And at the core, I think it's my take, it's very simple. Employees who are engaged are more productive. John Scott, do you agree? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's elemental. I just posted something recently on, on LinkedIn, uh, McKinsey's study about uh, engagement and how it directly correlates to organizational success. And before that, how it relates to teams and culture and how it, how it really does permeate the entire organization uh, relationship with clients and relationship to one another in the organization. So engagement as a new metric, as we're discussing today, is really an elemental piece. It's always been important. And now when we talk about this, I just wrote down what Laura said, you know, her accident uh, forced her to hit pause. And with the coming out of COVID, we were all globally taking a collective pause and everyone reassessed and is still reassessing. So in the midst of all the different nomenclature now, the great resignation, the great, uh, you know, I said the other day, the great reflection, everyone's wondering why they're doing what they're doing where they're doing what they're doing and what they're going to focus their time and energy and passions on going forward. So absolutely agree with you. And I'll pass it over to Arnaud to, to give his perspective on this as well about engagement. What do you think, Arnaud? Oh, thanks. Uh, just for you guys who just uh, joining us now, just know you're in a extremely good hands. I mean, the three uh, of us, the, the, I guess, the, uh, John and, and Rajiv and Sharad, we, we hear no matter what, no matter what happened in our personal life, in our business life, we hear be it earthquake, be it storm, being we hear be super sick this morning. I get up my energy, mobilize all my forces, and I'm here for you. So all of you, we give our best for you. And 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 I and I would not expect nothing less from from Laura and Cathy. Laura, thank you for being uh, for being there. Amazing story. I'll read much more about you after after that. It's uh, incredible. And Cathy, who I know already, so I, I know she'll, she'll do a, a wonderful job. Uh, a couple of things I can say on return engagement. First of all, you know, even though we, uh, John is mostly living in New York, I was living in New York for 10 years and back in France and, and you guys in, in Dubai. But nowadays, you, you can take role model anywhere in the world and for anything. For instance, when I talk about gratitude, and it's a surprise to French people whenever I do a conference or coaching, I talk about my time as a coach in Pakistan. And I say in Pakistan, they really, they were really grateful for, for, for what I bring to them. They really show me in their words, in their energy. Um, uh, so it, it can come from anywhere, right? What, we sh what we're seeing today. For instance, we're launching, so we just launched our new project, as uh, Sharad said, it's a personal growth platform called Humanava. And there is in France, you know, no matter how big it is in France, we have no uh, great media edtech accelerator. So I just got, I don't know if I told you, Rajiv, but I just got in yesterday into an online tech accelerator from Dubai on edtech, right? And it's called reimagine, right? Just to start with you, the word you start. So first, it can come from anywhere engagement, any role model from any, any discipline. For instance, more and more, I'm, I'm, I'm 48 years old and I'm boxing twice a week, two hours each time with 18 years old dudes from tough neighborhoods. And every time I'm scared and every time I learn something and I'm like, 
I can't believe with everything I've done around the world. They, they have no idea who I am. They have no idea, you know, all my conference and books and stuff. And I, and I shut up because they'll punch me more if I say anything, right? But every time I learn from them on motivation, on inspiration, and I, at the end of the year, I want to tell them who I am and I want to inspire them. For now, I'm learning from them. So we can learn from anywhere, anytime, as long as we write down and as long as we say, thank you. Second thing on return on engagement. So we can define that uh, any way we want for me. It's to find new metrics based on soft skill, right? And soft skill, same thing. There's no real definition on soft skills, right? It's it's not not uh, it's not not just hard skills. It's much more. For me, hard skills, uh, soft skills is about diversity and inclusion, feminine leadership, resilience, encouragement, enthusiasm. And what I do with my team now, we just did a team building. This is the metrics I give them. So the metrics are on the effort, on how much diversity they're going to show me, on how much empathy they're going to show one another, and they're going to show it to the customer. And all of us, we have something to change in one of those metrics. For instance, France, because I was gone for 20 years, there's a huge lack of empathy. And I'm saying that when I'm in front of French people. It's unbelievable. Whenever I go to a conference with a French guy, have, there is no respect for one another. And, and, and each other, they always say, you have to. Il faut que. Il faut que. And I say, no, no, there's no il faut que. They say, there's a possibility, I think, I think, based on my, on my bias, based on my cognitive bias and my own, own experience, I think maybe, but not il faut que. So friends, a lot of things to offer to the world, not so much in terms of empathy. And same for each nation, right? So uh, two things, you can learn from anywhere. The more I see it from any, you know, the toughest the neighbors or the, 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 the further the country. And second thing, the return and engagement for me is based on new metrics, metrics based on sub-skills. Over to you, Rajiv. You know, I, every time I follow you, I just say, listen, man, you've said everything I need to say, but I'll add, I'll add an element. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I think you're, 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 you're bang on. And we talk about humanizing the corporate space. We've all known it's something that has to be done. All six of us here talk about this. We live it, in fact. But it's, it's time for corporates to sort of see that you know, for those of us, we've, we've identified the word soft skills as something that is, ah, it's on the side, it's not as important, it's a soft skill, right? But, you know, humans are not soft skills, right? We, we bring our whole human to work, you know, and, and as Laura shared in her story, you know, you need to start to realize that being conscious is highly important. And that's why it's about time we start looking at, if you want to talk about tangible numbers and talk about tangibility, engagement, it's about time we start to realize, wait a second, we are humans at work and there is something we need to start to measure. Now, I'll add one more element, which is really interesting. And I know Sherrod is waiting for me to say it, so I'll throw it. Is that one of the key drivers that conscious leaders all around the world and adding to all the elements you spoke about is purpose, right? When we, we bring to work and we wanna, we wanna create you know, a future for not only corporates, but the world at large, it's all about creating impact. And ultimately, it all connects to why we want to do it. So return and engagement is a, is a beautiful matrix we need to start looking at. And, and the reason is because we want to go beyond presenteeism 
and we want people to show up and create impact. Now I throw that to Laura because I know Laura can pick it up from here. Yeah, well, I'm I'm huge on purpose because I think you know at the end of the day we all we're all here to put our dent in the universe, right? And we're all here to think what is that? What is it we want to achieve? So purpose is really really important because if we don't know why we're doing something, we end up just fitting in with other people and what they want, and we kind of feel dissatisfied. But I think what what what's really important for me in terms of engagement as well are a couple of things um, is that managers account for 70% of the variance of employee engagement. So how are managers managing in these times? People have realized, you know, year, you know, before COVID, everyone was in the office and it was uh, nice to have if you were allowed to work from home. Well, obviously COVID then proved to everybody that like it or not, we can work from home and we could be really productive. And so people's views of what they want in terms of their well-being and flexibility um, have changed. And it's really important that now managers back in the workplace are able to capture that. And a lot of that is down to the company culture and what people, how they feel connected to what the company need and whether the company are actually capitalizing on their own needs. We all want to do meaningful work. And one of the things that I get a little stressed about um, is the fact that I think that, you know, obviously every company has business competencies, KPIs, things that we've got to, people have got to work towards, totally get that. But competencies, when you work to that in the nicest way, it's still the company's wish list. It shows that as employees, you're fulfilling what the company needs. But it doesn't actually give you the opportunity to show where your key skills are. What are you great at? And are you within the competencies, leveraging your own personal experience, talent, strengths, etc. So I think these are things when we think of how the managers are, are engaging teams, it's a, for me, it's about being ha having conversations, not just check-ins, but conversations. What do your people need? And are we aligning purpose with company values and company competencies? and personal strengths for people's own development. So, and, you know, culture, that's another story, but let me share, Katie, you're nodding. Please, please share more with us. I love what you're saying about skills and competencies. So how skills from the individual perspective, but then competencies that the corporates actually want to bring out of the individuals and how there's actually a gap between them. Also, I'm really interested in what Arno said about it being global. I think that's so true. We sometimes forget what a privilege it is to actually be able to have role models all over the world. I'd like to come back a bit more to what Rajiv was saying in terms of purpose. I feel this is directly connected with engagement in terms of connection. Because if there's one thing that we've seen in the pandemic in the last couple of years, it's really a lack of connection and human connection around us. And I feel that the online world, just like we're doing right now, is a form of connection. And if we think about it, engagement at its essence is really about connection. And the, another good point Alno made in terms of how do we measure this, right? This is the question. This is why maybe some companies are reluctant to look at ROE compared to ROI is because to measure soft skills is always tricky. But if we think about it, obviously engagement helps with brand awareness, with brand opinion, and the likelihood of there being a purchase. 
So, and that also reminds me of what Thess Godin says when he says that being trusted is the single most urgent way to build a business. And this is what it is really. Engagement leads to trust. And with that, it's a lot more likely to build a business. So the real question is, when we're engaging in other people's businesses or content on social media and when they're doing it with ours, then how can we see that it's correlated? So we might notice that the authority and credibility builds. We might see that there is some more engagement. We might count the likes and track the comments, but how are we able to see it from a tangible perspective? So I'm really curious, Sharad maybe, or John Scott, what is your perspective in terms of measuring these soft skills and the engagement? Yeah, if I may come in, um, you know, we all agree in the room that we have to engage our teams and align them with the common purpose of the organization, right? That's a given. The next topic is, uh, you know, how, how do you get the engagement uh, actually happening? How do you translate it into reality? It's, it's uh, all well and good, you know, to, to talk about it, to be well-meaning, but it's another to implement it uh, up and down the organization. So I want to quote uh, two organizations, both from Europe, uh, who have tried some experiment and it has worked uh, to a certain level. The first one I want to talk about is Heineken. Yeah, they uh, tried a job rotation program. So every employee got a chance to sit in on some other desk and do that job. And what it helped is, they realized their sweet spot in terms of what they would love to do in that organization. They also realized the hardships that their colleagues were going through, right, to deliver the results. So this job rotation exercise for Heineken worked wonders for them. And they are planning to have this as an ongoing exercise and rolling it out in different locations. So that's one story. Very quickly, the second story I want to talk about is what Netflix tried, uh, this was uh, labeled as a no rules environment. No rules environment. What did that mean? Every employee was authorized to take strategic decisions. Every employee was given the authority to take strategic decisions. They could relate to purchasing stuff, what is good for the company, even taking unlimited vacation, which was not even tracked or logged, as long as it was good for the company, they were allowed to do that. It was a one month experiment. And the learnings were every employee felt empowered. He had the freedom to do things his way. And they bought into the organization's uh, objectives on their own, they didn't have to be sold anything. So uh, obviously these two experiments have worked for those organizations for their cultures. And it obviously does not imply that it will work in our organization. But I wanna throw this up to the audience. Uh, do you see merit in uh, companies experimenting with something totally new, turn it upside down? I've even heard of a CEO who says, uh, my people don't report to me, I report to them, right? Meaning he wants to understand them, what psychs them, what motivates them, what they don't want to do at work. So I think the time has come when we uh, re really need to stand on our head, metaphorically, obviously, and look at things totally from a distance 
and experiment. And who knows, you know, we might strike gold. So I'm going to throw it over to John Scott to take that forward. There's so much, so much to talk about. <clears throat> I've been listening to all of you very intensely. I want to touch on something quickly, which uh, you know, Arnaud uh, was speaking about soft skills. And I have an issue, perhaps it's the New York in me with the nomenclature. So I've started to try to use new nomenclature about this, and I'll invite you to uh, give feedback on it over time. I think that organizations that are successful in engaging their teams and creating transformative cultures for themselves and their clients find a, a nice uh, balance between what I'm calling human skills and technical skills. So that interplay, there's, you know, it's, there's no surprise that Arnaud and, and my companies have human built into the, <laughs> the title of the organization. So if we can look at things in terms of human skills and technical skills and where those kind of marry organizationally are really where the magic is potentially happening. When we look at organizations that you're talking about, Sherrod, we're talking about trust as an elemental piece. And I think the clients that I'm working with have gone through a, a metamorphosis with coronavirus in the sense that people are not in the office. Uh, they're not physically being able to be seen, even if we do a webinar like, you know, Zooms uh, like this. So they have to say, you know, this is the deliverable and they have to kind of let it go. And the metrics on the results are, are readily available, right? I think that's the thing. It's not just wondering for indefinite periods of time, but the control aspect or perceived control aspect of being in the office. I, you know, I said this to one of my clients the other day. I said, well, you know, you don't see them in the office, but you know, I could watch Sherrod at his computer. He could be sending an email to his wife. Uh, and I said, well, he's working hard over there. You know, so <laughs> the metrics of, of performance are still there. The results are still measurable. The, the trust aspect of it and that interplay between human and technical skills are really where we're talking about in terms of really engaging people. It helps with respect. I think that's a critical component. Uh, it drives purpose uh, and it ultimately drives engagement that's going to be transformative and results driven. So I'll, I'll throw it back to uh, Arnaud for his comment on this as well. I think that that piece is, uh, is elemental to success where we can kind of cross over uh, in that regard. What do you think, Arno? You're muted. Muted. Yes, trust, trust, trust. This is the only way you get uh, people more creative. You see it every single day. I mean, I just hired a, two people. One is a 20 years old uh, graduate from uh, a very low level school. And I told her so. She she knows. I didn't care. I don't even remember the which school she she's from. I just hire on passion and self skill. But I just I just uh, I just try her. Send her. I said talk to the biggest journalist. Go pick up the phone and go. I don't know. Just go do. And after ten calls, she's good. It's okay if we miss one. There's twenty thousand journalists in France. It's okay. You'll get better next time. Yeah, you'll see. And then same thing. Public speaking. She's never done public speaking. She's twenty. She's a bit shy. There's a group of people talking, coming to, to see me the other day at the office. 20 people, you go, go, get up. And then she was fine after, after three minutes. And, and just this alone, those declic, those breakthrough. And what we need to teach, what I understand is the, the trust we're talking about, all of us, we understand that because we've experienced that with ourselves, with our client, with our teams. We, the six of us know that. But what I'm understanding, selling our personal growth platform right now to the HR people and even to learning and development manager, most of them don't 
don't understand what is return on engagement because they themselves, for many, never went through a breakthrough. Like they never had a declick, a breakthrough. So where they act on and change their life, since many of them, and, 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 it, and it's great, they spend five, 10, 20 years at the same job. It's great. As long as they were changing, as long as they were innovative, and as we know, many, many were not. And so they don't know the power of, of, of trusting someone so they can be creative and the creative equal engagement and more productivity at the end. And so I, what, I think what we need to learn is just to teach them of the power of breakthrough. I was talking to a HR friend of mine and they say, just tell them it's a dick, uh, dick leak or breakthrough plus performance equals social performance. And then maybe they will get it. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out, out there. But what I'm understanding is because we, we, we understand, we believe all of us change our life many times here on the panel. So we know the, 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 the power of and, and But people who have not lived through, we, when we talk to CEO, they get it. But when we talk to HR and learning and development manager, I think many of them, we just need to teach them on, on how the, 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 this whole notion of, of, of trust will equal performance on the field at the end of the day. So not maybe within three months, but within six months or one year and two years. Highly quantifiable, but this is where, where one of our, our challenges resides. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in before I kick it over because what you just sparked in me is the, the thought that there's a lot of different analysis we can put into why this is the case. And there's even a question in the Q&A about, um, you know, why do we think what causes the lack of presence of empathy and gratitude? And I think to your point, they haven't been challenged. I think if we really get to the core, it's fear. It's absolutely fear because they, they, they're not, you have this cascade, right? I love this word I use all the time in my French work. It's cascading back for the generations of, they weren't trusted, they weren't empowered. They somehow got to a leadership role by their hard work. And then guess what? They don't trust, they don't empower. And it's this vicious cycle. And it all comes from this point of fear because fear of making a mistake in work is really a huge uh, paralysis for most organizations and leaders, even C-suite. They're terrified of their board. They're terrified of the stock market. Uh, they're terrified of any fear of failure. So they don't innovate. They don't empower their teams. They don't trust. So uh, I think that's one of the things holding back. So I, I kick it over to, uh, to Rajiv for his uh, feedback and then whoever else wants to jump in, of course. You know, it, it's, it's such an interesting um, conversation when you start talking about the word trust in there, right? We, you know, there was a, a couple of statistics that were really amazing to, to think of. There was, a, there was a stat that I read that said 55% of CEOs worldwide feel that trust is, is one of the biggest threats they have to the organization, lack of trust. Yeah, 55%, that means more than half. We know pre-pandemic, there was engagement studies that said it's what, about 85, 86% of people worldwide were not engaged, right? Yet when you ask in an audience, and we all do conversations like this, where we ask, do you love what you do? Everyone puts their hands up, right, Laura? Everyone goes, yeah, I love what I do. Yet 85% of us, and not say us, because we are responsible, are not engaged at work. And then trust is obviously imperatively missing. So it's telling us a human story. And then, you know, the, the right brain leaders go, okay, wait, wait, we need something tangible to measure so we know, but there's nothing out there. The truth is there is, there are tools out there. There are tools that measure entropy. There's actually a study that spe speaks about wasted energy, which is the opposite of engagement, right? And they say where, when leaders are trusting, entropy, entropy levels are incredibly low. That means people 
they manage their people really well, right? And then Sharad, they do what you said, you know, they, they, they come up with new concepts, new ideas, they're willing to take the risk because they're okay failing. See, isn't it amazing? The minute you're given permission to fail, you do anything new to try to not fail, right? <laughs> because the whole idea is, okay, well, I have the, you know, try it with your kids, right? We, we do that and it works beautifully. What do you think, Laura? I don't know. I agree with you. I think that, and I've seen a huge amount. I've worked with so many companies and we talk about results um, and where, where, where accountability happens. If, if, if we look at, um, um, what's it, Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, for example, he talks exactly about this, that everyone, but, you know, races through the process of, of uh, commitment and accountability and results, but they fail to go back to the bottom level of allowing people. And I, I don't know whether it's just about um, fear of failure. I think sometimes, unfortunately, there are managers who already have made their decisions without actually getting buy-in from their teams listening and the whole point of having people in is that you brought them on board for their ability for their knowledge so listen to them and, and I think people need to have a space where they feel that they're allowed to voice their opinions they're allowed to have a buy-in to discussions even if it's not that theirs isn't the final view but unless people are allowed that platform to talk and discuss and feel that they that they can be open then that everything's going to bypass that trust and I think a lot of managers don't allow a forum for that to happen and I think that's where trust is really missing um, and and that's why a lot of people don't really attain the things that they or, or do what they really could do because they've not been asked and they've not been given the platform to to talk about it yes I think having a platform is essential that's true but I also think compared to what John Scott was saying with the fear I think that's fundamental and that's why so many managers micromanage it also always comes from fear also I love what you were saying about fear of failing and experimenting and the examples that Sharad gave in terms of experiences and experimenting that also shows the willingness to fail but it also brings out the creativity which is what you were saying Arnold when people are empowered they're more likely to try something new and go with it one thing that sort of strikes me as linked to all of this is belonging especially given that nowadays everything is more digital and people are working more from home how can we be more engaged if we don't feel we belong and this is where not being physically present in an office or not having a space, like you were saying, Laura, where they feel they can open up and be vulnerable and express how they're feeling and managing their emotions, for instance, that leads to a lack of belonging. And if there's no belonging, just like with the connection aspect or the purpose aspect, this directly impacts the Yes, the engagement and how connected they feel with the company. So I feel this is all tied and it's a matter of looking at what can help people to feel that they belong, especially if we're thinking about a virtual digital world. Is this linked to the values? Is it making the mission and vision more clear? Is it having a space, even if it's a virtual space? Is it having a specific mentor within the company that they can talk to openly, but really ensuring that there's a place, whether it's virtual or emotional or physical, where people feel they can open up and share so that they can be more engaged? I think if I may just say on that, though, I think also then this really also reflects back on company culture. 
because you know really that's a, the optimal performance driver and if you've got a culture that promotes this and you've got leaders who are who are you know really checking in listening to their staff then i think this makes all the difference as to whether people feel that they're being part and included in what in, in company and the way the company is being run and that aligns to what they need then i think that's where the difference the difference comes in. Rajiv, you're you're nodding your head there. Did you did you have something to add to that? I did. I did. I love what you guys are saying. I love Laura. I love your point because it got me thinking, and, and I do this a lot, right? When you start talking Rajiv, this yeah. one before you go on. I love you too, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question. I throw back Arnold, since you said I'm gonna throw this back at you. You know, we talk about leadership and how important role modeling is, and absolutely we all agree. But leadership is also a trait, and that means that we all can learn it. We can all show up as leaders, right? And I think that's a message we need to send, is we need, to, we need everyone to understand that leadership can be learned. I know I throw it back to you because this is something which you talk about. Leadership is a trait you can learn, and everyone can show up as leaders, and it makes a difference to organizations worldwide when we all show up that way. Right. And, and I think, I mean, it's maybe a worldwide... Americans get, get it more than, I think, the rest of us in the world. I think and they, they know... I mean, in Asia, I spent many, many years in Asia, four years in Japan and a couple of years almost in China. And it's always like a leader is born and, and they, they're really good at working in teams because in a way they decide who's going to be the leader and everyone follow them. So there's no wasted time, but the, the, the other side of the coin, it's really hard to grow as a leader in Asia and China if you don't have the, like the balls to be the, 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 the biggest guy, the loudest guy in the wall, in the, in the, in the room. In America, it's more. I think that it's more trainable if you have some traits. But no matter what, no matter if you're in a, anywhere in the world, what I yeah, what the goal of what we're doing now is to tell people, yeah, it's possible to train on empathy. It's possible to train on emotional intelligence. It's possible to train on on leadership. It all comes down to, and we've talked in a subtext here, but it's all about self knowledge, right? And twenty percent of people are always already twenty people. 20% of people only know about themselves, have studied themselves, have been a student of themselves, I've seen a coach or a shrink or something or a sounding board of some sort and really deep down understand themselves. But 80%, again, 80% of people, even managers don't know themselves. So it comes down to know yourself first and decide which traits you want to change. Just put it on paper. I mean, I'm, I, was work, I was working this morning before you guys on a speech I'm doing on courage in a, in a, in a big group Friday in France. And I will, well, I will start by feminine leadership um, because there'll be a, a, a feminine leadership panel just before. And I'm going to mention this uh, woman called Caroline. Uh, I think her last name is uh, uh, Mulder. I'm not sure anyway. Anyway, she's a, she's a big... Uh, She's a big consultant slash uh, in-house staff for the UN, UNHCR. And I, I met this woman as 2019, and she was like 55, 60, but she has a real command of herself. Like amazing. Like she knows how to listen to people in teams because we work on an event for a few months. She knows how to listen to people, know how to be nice and feminine at time, but then bold and, and masculine when needs to be. And I just like everyone appreciate, no matter if you're a man or woman, 20 years old, 60. And I asked her after a few weeks, I'm like, I mean, how do you do? Have you always been like this? I mean, 
like really quite amazing. I mean, you're on stage or whether you're one-to-one or you're on stage. And she said, no, Arno, I was not always like this. And at some point down, I was around 30, 32 years old. I wrote down everything which is not as a real leader on me, everything that needs to work. And it took me seven, eight years to work on each of those points. And I mean, for me, it's it was one of the most incredible uh, leadership lesson, right? I wrote down and it took her. So it didn't take me six months, one year. It took me eight years. But when I was 40 years old, I was really good. And she, was, she has really trusted him. And I mean, she showed it. Never a sign of arrogance whatsoever. But she could command and yet show uh, empathy. But she just assess herself, assess what's meeting, and find any way to train. The best mentors, the best blog, the best podcast, anything she could find. The schools. Uh, so this is my answer to your question. You bring a great point, Arno, which I, I, it just resonated with me, which is, and, and I'll own this, you know, I was going to say we sometimes are, but I'll say I sometimes am guilty of this too, where I have clients over many years and I say, oh, it's, it's Arno. And I think about all the different feedback I have on this person, right? And then I kind of frame my conversation around this. I think we all as leaders and as people have to be open to the fact that this time frame has transformed even the hardest uh, people to deal with. I had someone last year in May of 2020 uh, say to me, um, I just need everybody back in the office by June. And I was on a Zoom call with him and I leaned in and I said, uh, it's over. And he's, he freaked out and he's come so full circle. He and I are now fighting with uh, their CEO about their return to office strategy. And I said, uh, and he's a huge advocate now on my side for like flexibility and empowerment. And so it reminded me to say, okay, everyone is in motion. Everyone is, is ideally learning and adapting and changing. And so we need to really, as leaders and as, as coaches and consultants, really say, okay, now I can't type this person, even if I'm working with them for a decade, that how have they changed? How have I empowered their change? But also independent of my work with them, because they do experience growth outside of the coaching modalities, like how have they changed? How has their life and the world helped change them? So I love that uh, that idea. Now I'll kick it back over to uh, to Rajiv. Like, how do you feel? This is oh, oh Sharad's gonna say. Before Rajiv comes in, I want to slightly shift the direction of this conversation. I know we are talking about engagement, but I think it's equally important to know when to disengage from work. Like I'm I'm going towards work-life balance. Just because we are working from home people think that we are always on. They can communicate anytime. And that is not good for individuals. It's not good for business. Volkswagen did a very smart thing. Half an hour before end of day, they shut down their intranet. No internal communications happen. They are winding down people to disengage from work, right? I wonder what your thoughts are on that because I, I'm reading a lot about burnout issues, mental health issues, people struggling with this uh, hybrid work environment. So I think all of us as leaders have to build a culture where we say it's okay to stop working. Take that well-deserved pause, recharge your battery. Laura is raising her hand, over to you, Laura. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that I'm something that, you know, I've done a lot of work around on on well-being because, you know, we talk about the COVID pandemic, 
but actually the mental health issue is the biggest epidemic of the 21st century. And since COVID, this whole thing on burnout has gone crazy, right? Because we were all kind of forgetting boundaries and just, I think to, first to prove that we were working from being at home and then it's just kind of got a bit stupid and people have just kind of assumed that uh, we can erode the working hours and keep going. And I get a lot of people coming to me saying, how do I get a work-life balance? And I think the reality is that, you know, it is now, you know, work and life are intermingled. It's not gonna change. But I think it's really, uh, I think it's really important that, that um, organizations and leaders, you know, respect the teams and have rules about what's appropriate in terms of calls and meetings, etc. But I think it's also very important for individuals to take accountability of their own time and set boundaries. You know, if you want to, you know, I mean, I, despite all my accidents and all my issues, I work out every day, it makes me feel good. And I find that time, you know, and, and if it means that I'll, I'll, got time in the morning and I'll do it then and I'll work later in the evening. That's my choice. But what I want to do is find my my time and my family time and I'll fit it in with my work and all the things I've got to do. And I think that's what people need to look at. I think they're trying to have two separate things. And I, I don't think it quite works like that nowadays. I see that, uh, Rajiv, you're, you're nodding your head there. So I, I, I'm nodding, you Laura. You're, you're echoing everything I think it's say. So I absolutely agree. I, I think we add the words autonomy and job crafting to that. And, and absolutely on. Everyone works. We are human. We work in different ways. Some of us need meditation and workouts in the morning, we start a day a little later, but then we work longer hours. It, it really depends on you and how you fit it in. And then it comes back to you love what you do. And if I, and I've had this, I've had this uh, conversation with people who say, listen, I, I love what I do, but the job that I have, I need. So it, it's not something which, and it, it's a reality. A lot of people have to work for a need, but then do you do other things with your day that you love doing so you can create that balance? So it's all about creating balance, right? So even though we talk about work-life balance, when we separate the two, I agree with you, Laura, it's, it's intermingled completely. Um, I, do, I do agree. Laura, Katie? Brought, up, brought up a great point, Laura, which is about having this, having this flow and looking for this balance. And I think for organizations and bringing it back to the topic of this webinar for engagement, the key point to me in this, when I agree with you 100% as well, is that if organizations and leaders don't engage and meet their teams where they are, I think this P, this BC, like a AC, like after Corona time has proven that some organizations will. And if organizations don't engage their teams, other organizations will. And I think yeah, that it's a really transformational time in the world. And I, I, I do mean it in as huge a sense as that, where people are saying, I want this time. I just gained 10, 50, in New York City, the average commute is an hour each way, even if you live in the city, one thing or another. So I just gained 10 hours a week for my personal health, for my time with my family, minimum. So how can I find this organization? I have a friend who's a recruiter and we just had a, she had a very tough year, obviously with coronavirus. And I said, I have an idea, uh, target only organizations who want remote workforce and only people who want to work remotely. And now she's like the singular organization in New York who's focused on that. And she's inundated with, with, uh, with business because the opportunities are there. You know, so, uh, so I see Katie shaking her head. So jump in with some thoughts, Katie. 
Beauty. Yeah, I like that. That was very strategic, very smart. They're only remote for the recruiting. I would come back to what Rajiv was saying in terms of autonomy. The other word that came to my mind was assertiveness. So, Laura, you mentioned the boundaries, but it's also the people having the ability to be assertive and to say they will not work past this time. And again, this comes back to fear. This comes back to a different form of fear, but the fear that they will be seen as not working hard enough, not willing to put in extra hours when everyone else is. And I've worked on this topic several times with clients, this real fear of if I don't answer my emails pack 6 or 7 p.m., what will the other people think? And there's this sort of power battle, you know, people answering emails at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And so other people feel like they're slacking. And this comes back, if we look behind the fear, to self-worth. Because when people feel that they are worthy of this balance, they are worthy of their own well-being, they yeah. are a caretaker of themselves, then they can actually put these boundaries in place. And so we have this work-life balance. So essentially, they are intermingled. And the reason why people struggle with it is because they haven't worked on their own self-worth or their own self-knowledge, as you were saying, Arno, to see that actually they can allow themselves this space and this boundary. And once they allow it to themselves, then it's easier. Yes, Arno. Yeah, uh, if I may say so, we, we have a class on our platform called a, a Burnout Prevention, and it's 90 minutes just on that. Just on <laughs> not being too much uh, conscientious of your work, not conscious of your work, but conscientious. Conscientious, yeah. All studies, all, and we had the, the French burnout specialist and France, like anywhere in the world, 50% of the workforce is burnout or in the process of becoming. And she said the most 90% of burnout people are people who are so conscientious. They want to be so right. They go to the last minute, to the last minute. They want they want to be praised. They want the, 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 the boss to, to put them on the, on the next thing. And, the, and they're putting too much of what they have. And for what I say, it's hard to, what we have to, I think, be careful is we can say, don't just put all your energy in, in, in the work. Just, but if they're not, if they're only used to that, it's hard for them to, to think another way. So what you tell those people, instead, it's like, if you want to, I once read a book on how to quit smoking, even though I never smoked. I was, I was really, uh, uh, I was really curious on how to tell people not. To, and it says, you can't tell people smoking is bad. Smoking, no one cares. They know it's bad. It's written all over the world. You need to replace this with another thing. So what you tell to those pre-burnout people is, go back to your passion. What, what was it? Sports, go back to workout. Dancing, go back. Uh, going in a bar, go back, whatever it is. Go, go back to multiple passion. And, and, and if you go back to, you, uh, to have multiple interest, it's, it's a multiple way not to, to go uh, to, the, to the deeper end, right? We need, yeah, we need family. It's not enough. We need work. It's not enough. We need sports. It's not enough. And you need one or two passion, something that will always be there. Even if you're sick, even if you get divorced, even if you get fired, you can still paint or go for a run. And you need to replace that. So, okay. So what I did, I, I uh, before starting the platform for six months, I was an executive coach in a, in a firm in, a, in, in Bordeaux where I live now. And we had I had a 100 employee and I would see them 20 minutes at a time. And all of them, Every single one of them, go back to your passion. I'm, I'm freaking out. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with the COVID? 
go back, to, what was it? What do you like to do? And all of them at the end of the six months went back to our writing or painting or whatever, whatever it was. But you, you need to, to force that, I think, force them to go to, uh, to, to, to another, another thing. No, no. Laura? I want to just, I totally agree. And I wanted to just say on the other side of it, again, I think, you know, this whole well-being piece basically comes back to, you know, psychological safety in terms of the company, right? You know, you know, what is our employee experience through work? What, what, how, what are the values of the company? How, what kind of flexibility are they prepared to, to give us? I mean, a lot of people are frightened, you know, yes, they're burning the candle and trying to prove themselves, but there's also a trust issue that some companies seem to think that if, if people are taking a bit of time off, they're not being productive and not really recognizing the fact that flexibility can make people more productive. Um, and it's just under, allowing for companies to back off a bit and, and see what their people need to thrive. And I think some of them are not, haven't been doing that. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of the issues have come in. So individuals have still felt you know, I can't do, I can't do, even though we know at the end of the day, we always have choice, but them choosing to do this because they don't feel that they've got that psychological safety feeling from their organization. So I think that that's something that's really important for uh, organizations to think about because flexibility is key now. We've proved that over the COVID environment. Right, uh, if I may come in, uh, we are 54 minutes into our conversation. So I'm going to give one minute to each of our panelists to just uh, wrap up. And I want your closing thoughts on this topic. I mean, let's assume that uh, when, once we are done with this webinar, you get a call from a CEO who wants to engage you uh, to improve the engagement metrics in his organization. So what are you going to be advising? And I'm going to start with Katie. Yes, great point. I think it like, comes down to what we were saying earlier, which is managing a psychological safe environment, as you were saying, Laura, having that space for people that they can actually hold that space so they can express themselves and communicate their needs. And it all comes down to connection, purpose and belonging and really working on these three aspects specifically to help them to have better engagement within the company. Great. John Scott? I think it's, it's going back to seeing people as individuals and uh, it's, it's kind of, a, it's all inclusive to our whole dialogue, which is honoring their passions and understanding that it's not overcoming the individual and human aspects of your team that you have to overcome to be successful. It's, it's acknowledging and amplifying the human uh, that you're working with in order to drive success. And I think people like us and people in the webinar are listening, it's it's incumbent upon us to help steer that ship that way. Uh, that's yeah. my bottom line. So totally agree, Rajiv. You know, I would start with measuring your culture. I would start with measuring your entropy and knowing where you are. Because if you want to fix anything or change anything, start by actually seeing where you are. Um, you know, I cannot emphasize this. I always keep on repeating this start by measuring where you are and then move yourself forward. And then just to add the other dimension here, you know, we've spoken about trust today is, is your ask yourself these deep questions. Today on the chat, I've thrown out a lot of questions. 
and continuously ask yourself these questions. Are we creating a trust a culture where we can be vulnerable? Is it, is it acceptable as a leader or as my people? Are we creating a culture where we accept uh, autonomy, job crafting? You know, are we, are we expecting too much from our people? We need to start asking these questions if we want to humanize our, our workforce and our, our organizations. Yeah, Arnold? Yeah, trust, purpose, passion, find metrics. As I say, your own metrics, each company is different. Preferably maybe based on, on soft skill or the connection that John Scott said between and technical skills and, and human skills. Community, let them know they will always be part of the community, even if they leave or they, they, they choose to work just half time or completely remote, they will be part of the community. Asking them what do they need to keep feeling part of the community. Some people need regular check-in, some people just twice a, twice a month. And then the big question is what's the cost of inaction? What would be the cost of them not doing anything? Beautiful. Great. Laura, last word. Uh, well, obviously, working as a Gallup strengths coach, I need to quote a bit of Gallup um, data here that people who work to their strengths are six times more engaged at work. They're more than 40% more productive. They're more than 80% likely to be part of a high-performing team and three times more likely to have an excellent quality of life. So for me, it's very much about taking what people do in terms of the business competencies, what the business needs and saying beyond that, how are we actually leveraging our people's strengths? Are they giving their true value? Are they being allowed to develop for themselves in line with what our company needs. So I think it's really important as a strengths coach to look at where your people are great. How do you make more of those great behaviors happen? And that's where you increase productivity and engagement. Great. So on that note, I think it's time to say bye to our audience. Time for me to thank each one of our panelists. Thank you, Sharon. And, and to summarize, uh, I read this somewhere. A happy employee may not be fully engaged. However, a fully engaged employee is always happy. So I think uh, that should summarize it. Uh, thank you, audience. See you on the other side. A recording and podcast will be available on onlywebinars.com in 24 hours from now. Uh, be good, stay safe, and see you on the other side. Thank you, panelists. Love you. Everybody. Bye. Thank you.